great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed? God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence in the sun and moon and stars with astonishment. They hear God chanting a hymn of joy. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. time. There's these 12 books of the Bible um, that are shorter in length. They are different prophets that God used at a very specific time in Israel's history. Um, And so we went through Hosea, Joel, through some other ones, Jonah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, or Habakkuk, as some might say. We went through uh, huh? Micah, thank you. McKenna, would you like to just come up here and teach? Okay. So she remembers. Um, yeah, so Nahum, also known as Nahum. Uh, doesn't Nahum sound like someone clearing their throat? Like, Nahum. <clears throat> Thought about that later. So we're going through these, these books that um, are in the Old Testament, leading up to the New Testament, Right? These are the final words that God had for Israel. Um, And after Malachi, we have 400 years of silence until John the Baptist comes on the scene. And so these are important words. They're important books. They are hyper-Israel books. There's a lot of history. Uh, We've we've been going through a lot of the history of Israel. And um, we have near fulfillment of prophecy as well as future fulfillment of prophecy that is to come. And we have that in the book before us tonight. Zephaniah has a near fulfillment and a future fulfillment, and we'll see that in a minute. But we've been giving each book a um, two sentences to remind ourselves kind of what it's about and why it's in the Bible, what the theme of the book is. And so Zephaniah is the prophet who could have been king, the, the prophet who could have been king. And it is the theme of it is Israel and God's redemption. Now, we've had every week or every book, there is the same, kind of the same cyclical themes. There's three three cyclical themes that we've been going through, and that is to return, return to the covenant, repent of your sin, and God will bring restoration, right? Those three things, they all start with R. Every minor prophet has those three elements within it, right? And we've been seeing those very clearly. Zephaniah is no different. We will see those themes extremely clearly. Extremely clearly? That's not even the right way to say it. Extremely clear. It will be clear, not in the way that I am not clear right now. It will be clear as we go through it. So um, and the reason he is the, the prophet who could have been king, it says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came, which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, <laughs> the son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. Okay, did you catch that one name right in there? Hezekiah, 
King Hezekiah was the last good king, or he was the best king after David, right? He was like the one king in, in Israel's history that was actually righteous and holy, other than the, the, the king who is Josiah, who is the kid king, he became king when he was eight. Sounds like a Disney movie, right? He's like, I'm king, like blank check. Remember blank check? Oh man, that's a great movie. Kid gets a million bucks or whatever and blows it all. It's awesome. Um, awesome train of thought. But that's what it's about, okay? So jo- Josiah was the kid king, but Hezekiah was, um, was Zephaniah's great, great grandfather. So he could have been king. He was in line, within that kingly line. But the 12 minor prophets are divided into two groups, okay? Uh, they're... They're in two groups. One is pre-exilic or exilic, which means before exile, and post-exilic, meaning after exile. Okay, so they are going into exile, or they've been in exile through the Assyrian Empire. Remember, uh, their capital was Nineveh. Jonah went to preach against them. Uh, Nahum told them, you're done, like you're done. You, you didn't repent. You, God's going to bury you in the ground. Remember that those... Remember those verses where it's like, I'm going to dig your grave and place you in it and cover the dirt. <laughs> Remember those? Those like very scary, scary verses where God's like, I'm going to pound you uh, into the ground. And he did. Uh, Nineveh stayed hidden for 2,400 years. They thought it was like Atlantis. They could not find it. It was covered in, in vegetation and like wild animals lived on top of it. Like they could not find Nineveh. So that prophecy came true. So you have to understand there are two time frames that are being written. The first nine minor prophets are pre-exile. They're writing before the Babylonians conquered and exiled Judah, right? Because remember, there's two different kingdoms at this time. Israel split in two. There's the northern kingdom of, of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The, the northern kingdom of Israel was, com- was super wicked, really bad kings. They were completely conquered by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, where Judah was still kind of hanging on and wasn't completely conquered. And remember last week in Habakkuk, he's like, how come like you're not just, God? Like, look at the works of Judah. How come they're not being judged? Why aren't you changing anything? And God said, it's coming. Just wait for it. And so he brought in these people called the Chaldeans, also known as the Babylonians, which is spelled like Babylonians, but it's Babylonians, okay? You know that. My kids, however, did not. And they were like, Babylonians. <laughs> Sounds like little baby people. <laughs> anyway, so, oh man. It's fun talking with like your nine-year-old about the things that you're teaching. And they're like, Babylonians? What is, anyway. Let's get back on track. So, the last three minor prophets are post-exile, writing during and after the return of Israel from Babylon to the promised land. And Zephaniah is the last of the pre-exile prophets and can be said to sum up the messages of the previous eight. And this is why Zephaniah seems unoriginal. If you're like, man, this sounds really familiar. You're not the first to kind of make that connection. A lot of scholars are like, man, this guy just stole from everybody else and feel like it's not original. But he quotes the words and ideas of many previous prophets because the word of the Lord came to him and it was the same. It was the same thing. Why was it the same thing? Because Israel still wouldn't listen. And the message of God never changed. 
It never changed. If you will return to the covenant, if you will repent, restoration will come. Okay? So that same theme you'll see through it. The name Zephaniah means Yahweh hides. Remember, he was growing up at a time of great wickedness, and so people were like, where is God? That's where he got his name. God hides. We can't find him. Um, Zephaniah has also, or was also certainly born during the long wicked reign of Manasseh. We talked about him last week, whose reign began 55 years before the start of Josiah's reign. And so Zephaniah was probably hidden uh, for his own protection. But in the days of Josiah, it says, um, in verse 1, Josiah was a godly young king who brought great revival and reform to Judah. But Josiah reigned for 10 years before he led his great revival. So Josiah was one of the only kings who like tore down the high places. He tore down the idols. He was like, no, we're going to go back to like worshiping the Lord. We're going to return to the covenant. He led, he led this great revival in his time. And so Zephaniah was likely written in the years before that revival. And God used his prophecy to bring in further revival amongst the people. So since this is more stuff that if you really want to know, come out and talk to me later and we'll talk about it. But this is probably stuff that we're moving on. So it begins. There's like a whole nother chunk about history. Blah. So here's what happens. Verse two, I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land, says the Lord. It begins with an inverse creation narrative. So it's the, the opposite of God creating the world. It, he, he lumps in the entire world. It's broad enough to include the whole earth and to allow some to think that God didn't really mean them. So they're like, God's talking about the world. He's not talking about Israel, right? He's, he's talking about others, not talking about us. And he's going to make it very clear who he's talking to. God will then focus in on the land of Judah specifically and would not allow him to think that he spoke against just others. But it begins with this inverse creation narrative. One prophecy that he gives, or this prophecy that he gives in verse 2, I will utterly consume everything on the face of the land, says the Lord. Um, this is one prophecy that is about two separate days of the Lord, okay? Zephaniah is a complicated book. He's a complicated man. Perhaps one that had deep feelings. I don't know. But um, I was, as I was studying, one of, the, one of the authors I was reading was saying, this book is incredibly complicated. And I was like, awesome, perfect. I can't, <laughs> I love complicated. How many of you love complicated? Um, I like simple simple things. But this is complicated because within this narrative and what he's describing, you have future fulfillment in that it's in the near future for them. There's a lot of Babylonian talk and a lot of what happened in their, their time frame exact, is exactly what happened with the Chaldeans when they came in and conquered. But there's also the great, notice the, the, the title of this chapter is the great day of the Lord also known as the 70th week of Daniel or the seven-year period called the Great Tribulation in the book of Revelation. So we have one prophecy that's covering 
two different events, two different times, one that has a near fulfillment in the Chaldeans in the exile of Israel, as well as a future fulfillment in the great day of the Lord where God pours out his wrath um, like a bowl of molten hot lava upon the earth. And he will describe it in great detail. But that's kind of where we are in this this uh, explanation or what he's talking about. He's talking about the great day of the Lord. He's talking about the wrath that is to come. That we know that there's an escape through Jesus Christ, right? We have, we're not appointed to wrath, the Bible says. We've been given this option of where we don't have to stand in our own righteousness before a holy God. We can be covered and hidden in the righteousness of Christ by faith through the sacrifice of Jesus. Bless you. So, He says in verse 4, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place. The names of the idolatrous priests with the pagan priests, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. I don't know what that is. Those who have turned back from from following the Lord and have sought the Lord, nor inquire of him. Verse 7, he says, Be silent. In the presence of the Lord God. For the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited his guests. He says to them, Be silent in the presence of the Lord. God addresses the royalty of Judah in a way that they aren't used to being addressed. He tells them to quite literally shut up, is what the Lord says to like the kings. He's like, Shut up. I'm talking right? (laughs) This is terrifying. This is terrifying. Be quiet. Listen to his pronouncement of judgment. He says it's a sacrifice of judgment made against a wicked nation. And the reason he tells them to be quiet is because our ability to proclaim our innocence when we are deep in sin is pretty amazing. Our ability to reason with the accuser of why we commit or do the things that we do and rationalize the things that we do, we are pretty amazing at it. And God says, I don't want to hear it. Guilty. Like, that's it. But through it all, God tells us, be silent in the presence of the Lord. There's no excuse. He says, there's no no working your way out of this. Have you ever been in trouble and you can somehow work your way out of it? Maybe you're great at that with tickets or something like that. Or or when you're caught and you begin to tell someone, this is why I do the things that I do. You don't understand my story. You don't understand what I've been through. Here's what we're And they're like, dude, shut up. You're in this mess because of you, right? Don't you? I hope you have a friend like that who tells you, dude, be quiet. You are in the mess that you're in because you did something stupid. It's no one else's fault but your own. It's at that point you can begin to be restored. Until you come to that conclusion that I'm at fault, I'm the problem, it's my doing, there's no digging your way out. Like you cannot reason with someone who will not see past their own faults, right? Maybe you've heard of someone like that. You probably aren't like that, but maybe there's someone in your life that you know and you're thinking of right now. But look at the second part of verse eight. He says, and it shall be in the day of the Lord's sacrifice that I will punish the princes and the kings and the the king's children and all such as are clothed with foreign apparel. 
This is an interesting sentence. Like God's going to punish people for wearing the wrong clothes? Doesn't seem just. Doesn't seem very merciful. What's being, what's being communicated here? The priests and leaders of Judah were ashamed of their national identity. They were ashamed of who they were as Jews, as God's chosen people. So they loved to dress in foreign apparel. They tried to make themselves and wanted to look like the world so much that they would get clothes from them and dress like them and try and act like them and, and blend in with them. And God says, I'm going to judge those who are like that. You know, this is a New Testament idea as well. Not in the sense that God's going to, you know, hurt you from wearing, you know, Nike shirts or, you know, not wearing robes to church or not wearing a suit to church. And if you're not a Baptist or something like that, you dress a certain way when you come to church. Obviously, we're not in that context and things like that. But this is a New Testament idea. It's, it's carried over in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. <laughs> Two weeks in a row. It says, and do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So the Apostle Paul even says, like, we're supposed to be different. This is something that the church tries to do. We try and reach the world with the world. We try to become like it or integrate with it, and there's no contrast between it. Like, there's supposed to be a difference between the church and the world. That's why God has called us out, Right? Leviticus is all about, the book of Leviticus is all about God calling his people to a way of living that is counter to the culture around them. He says, the world does it like this, but you, my people, you're going to follow these laws. You're going to approach me this way because this is how I've called you out. You're going to eat these things, not these things. You're supposed to be different. Why? So that the world looking on would see Israel blessed, worshiping their God, alive and real and true, and seeing that difference and looking on, they were to be a beacon of light to a godless world. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the theme of it is, this is the way of the kingdom. He says, you, you've heard it said. Why? He says, why do you worry? You see others worrying and these doing this. He's like, my people, my followers, why do you worry? Your God cares and sees you. It's the way of the kingdom. It's the way in which we follow Jesus. It's the, the Sermon on the Mount could also be themed counterculture. A different kind of way of life. A different way of, of walking with God and following after God. He calls us a city within a city. He says that we're a holy temple under God. We're, we're our own people. We're a, a holy nation, he calls us throughout scripture. The church, the apostles... We're all called the set-apart ones or the called-out ones. That's what we're called. But it's so easy, like we said in the past weeks, that behavior forms grooves in our life that we easily slip back into. Where suddenly it's easier to put on the cloak or the jacket of the world that kind of hides us from the world and, and, or, or hides that faith or hides that light. Um, and not to get all preschool, but remember we, the Bible says like, we were not to hide our light under a bushel. No, right? That's what the, the uh, no, I'm gonna let it shine, right? It, it's instilled in us as children. Why? Because that's what we do. What we, the Lord says you're a city set on a hill. 
And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You're a city within a city. You are to be set apart from the world. Don't go back and clothe yourself with the things of the world. We're called to be different. We're called to be separate. But it doesn't mean that you can't enjoy your life. You're not like, I, lo- I used to love snowboarding, but now that I'm a Christian, I can't love that stuff anymore. Like all things are redeemed in the grace of God. Like if you, you love to bake, you're like, I used to love to bake, but I became a Christian and everyone's gluten-free at my church, you know, or whatever. That's not what that means. Like that's not what that's saying. And you can see it, guys. You know what I'm talking about. You can see it. There's a course and a way of the world. Walk outside, walk amongst your coworkers, the people you go to school with. There is a mindset and a mentality that they're being driven by. It's the desires of the flesh. Whatever the flesh wants or feels, whatever the flesh desires, give in to that because that will make you happy and that's what satisfies. And the Bible tells us that we're counterculture. We're to deny the flesh and the desires of the flesh, but to walk in the spirit, obviously. So, the same thing here, when they're saying foreign apparel, they wanted to look like the world and blend in. The Bible, or I think someone put it this way, it's a better analogy than any of the analogies I just gave you, which were all horrible. But here's a good one. It's like a boat. <laughs> water, like you're in the world, right? The boat is in the water. When the water gets into the boat, that is a bad thing, Right? But we're suppo- where's a boat supposed to be? In the water. Unless you live in Kappa Beach and it's on your driveway. But, but most boats belong in the water. That's what they're, they're there for. That's what they're built for, is to be in the water. But it's not, the water's not supposed to get inside the boat. We are a new creation in Christ. We are in this world for the sheer purpose of affecting this world. But the world is not supposed to be getting into us. We're supposed to guard against that and uh, protecting ourselves from those grooves or those old behaviors in which we um, so easily fall into. Verse 11, moving right along, he says, Wail, you inhabitants of Mektash, for all your merchants, people are cut down, for those who handle money are cut off. It's The merchants are those with money who are trusted in their riches. Now God promises to cut down those steeped in that kind of idolatry. The worship of money. Now, in reading this, this is an ancient text. This is an old book. This is B.C., I mean, written before Jesus came to the earth. And what did we just learn? That these people were consumed with looking like the world and blending in. And what else? They worship money and riches. Are they any different than we are? Not really. Not too far off. Because we still live in a culture that is material-based and materialistic. Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, it says, it shows us this is not just an Old Testament concept. It says, therefore, put to death your members, which are on the earth, covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. It's the worship of what what money can get us. Money is not the, the, it is not evil in and of itself, but it is the root of all different kinds of evil. Correct? Everyone okay? All right. You tracking with me? All right. Cool. Is it warm in here? We can crack a window. All right. Are you terrified? Some of you just look terrified. I'm a nice guy most of the time. All right. Here we go. (laughs) 
Am I shouting? Is this really loud? I can back it up. Okay, cool. All right, it's good that you're here and we're all together and, and Jesus loves you and he loves me. All right, moving on. Feels weird in this room. Is it now have I made it weirder? Okay, I've made it weirder. All right, now that we pointed it out, it's become worse. What are we talking about? The worship of money. It's bad. Don't do that. Um, money is not, how many of you need it? Raise your hand. Money, like you need it. Like you have to have it. <laughs> like I, I, it's okay. I have to have it too. I, I have a job and I worry about it all the time. Like, are we going to have enough money? That's like a thing. It's okay. <laughs> You're like, not me. No way. I don't need it. Yes, you do. Dork. We all need it. Like everyone has to have money. It's a part of life. Like that's how we buy things. It's, it's, you know, you have to have it. Okay. So having money in your pocket is not a bad thing. If you have twenties, you're like Satan, you know, or whatever, <laughs> which by the way, the coffee cart is not free. Okay. If you're like, I only have twenties. We accept twenties also at the coffee cart. Just go ahead and put it in the little donation bin. Moving on. Money is not evil. What money causes or the love of money causes people to do is the root of all different kinds of evil. So the amassing of wealth in the nation of Israel, those that worshipped it, those that that was their goal in their mind and their heart and their treasure, the Lord says that that's not going to save you. No matter how much money you have, that's not going to save you. Um, in verses 12 through 13, um, it says, And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, The Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. God's not going to do anything. Some people believe in God as a great clockmaker, someone once said who created the universe, wound it up, and then left it ticking without any further intervention from him. But those who believe there is no God, or if he is, he has nothing to do with man, um, they are terribly and tragically wrong. Edward Gibbon, in his book, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, described the attitude towards religion in the last days of the Roman Empire. Okay, the Roman Empire fell apart. You don't, how many of you have met a Roman lately? They don't exist. They're gone. Attitudes are remarkably like our own today. Okay? Check this out. In the Roman Empire, the people regarded all religions as equally true. The philosophers regarded all religions as equally false. And the politicians regarded all religions as equally useful. Those were the attitudes of the Roman Empire right before it fell. And that is the attitude of our culture. And those that believe that God's not going to do evil or good, God says, that's not true. Like, God will judge. In God's loving kindness and his mercy, God must judge. The, the travesties and, and the, the things that have gone in, on in our world, the things that we all know about and no one's doing anything about, it seems like, are not unseen by God. And God will judge. God will judge um, those things. And, and God sees them. He even says that he will hunt for them with lamps. 
Like, God's going to hunt you in the dark and find you. There's no hiding. God bless you. But before we move on for, into chapter 2, it says in verse 18, Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them in the day of the Lord's wrath, but the whole land shall be devoured. He, he just says, like, your silver, your gold, your amassing of wealth, that can't deliver you. They can't save you. It never has been able to save anyone. Since, since the beginning, gold and silver or wealth has never been able to translate from, from the physical into the spiritual, right? It's never been able to transfer that, that grasp or, or go from one, from, to go from one or to the other. That's why 1 Peter 1.18, he says this, knowing that, our, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. We have to understand that the most valuable thing that we were redeemed with was not gold or silver. We were bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. That all we gather in the physical cannot pass or purchase to the spiritual. Our redemption was secured through the blood of the Savior. That nothing on this earth or in heaven could have purchased salvation. It was too costly but only the precious blood of Jesus Christ would suffice. And I love that Zephaniah makes that point as well. Silver and gold can't, can't deliver you. Those that trusted riches. Remember we talked about, and I think it was Nahum, those that felt safe, safety within their riches and what their walls and everything like that, that can't save you. Nothing in the physical can translate into the spiritual. In the, in the same way that, when people talk about sending things ahead, right? We're like, we can't, we can't send anything ahead. Like our treasures are in heaven, right? We, you, or sorry, you can't take anything with you, but you can send it ahead. What in the world can we send ahead? I, I, it's driving me crazy. What can I just like throw into heaven and be like, there it is. Like, what does that even mean? What, what can I send ahead except souls? That's it. There is nothing in this world. My house isn't going to survive. You read about the pouring out of the lava of God's, of God's wrath upon this earth, that all of it will be consumed and all of it will be destroyed. All of it, gone. Nothing from the physical in this life. Can I just start shooting into heaven? Like, yeah, yeah. What does God say is the most valuable thing on this earth? You look at the building materials of heaven. The foundations are the most precious jewels that we have on this earth. The streets, the things that you walk on are paved with gold. The gates are made of pearl. Like the most valuable things in this life, in this world, that we would think that's what it's going to be like. God says that's what I build stuff out of. Because the most valuable thing in heaven is human beings. It's souls. So whatever, what can we send ahead? A trailer? Like surfboards, what can I send ahead? It's human beings. That's the treasure. That's the glory. That's what I mean. That's even the crowns that God says, these are for you, for all the great things that you did for me and my name. I'm so thankful for you. Ah, and you go, it's yours. You throw it back down. It's no, it's all to the glory of God. It's always driven me crazy. Clearly, 
Like it just, what is more valuable than, any, than a human being? Nothing. Money will translate that where it's like money is more valuable than human beings. And that's what makes it so wicked. And the love and the worship of it. So guys, and you know, maybe you know what, what that means to send ahead. Talk to me afterwards and let me know because it's been driving me crazy for years. But here's what I do know. The most valuable thing, Jesus even said, he told the parable in Matthew chapter 13, that a man went to plow a field, he found a treasure within it. He went home, he sold all of his possessions so that he would buy the field. Why? For the treasure that is within it. And some people are like, that's what it's like when you find Jesus, man. You forsake everything and you found the treasure. When did you ever find Jesus? Did you find him or did Jesus find you? Okay. And did he, did you leave everything or did Jesus leave everything? He left glory, bought the whole world with his blood that's going to burn, redeemed it all so that he could save you. Okay. Human beings are the most valuable things on the planet. They are. And and that is what God sees as valuable. Not that animals aren't valuable and trees aren't valuable and all that stuff is valuable. It's fine. It's fine. But it's not more important than human beings. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 is a lot like Nahum. God pronounces judgments on a few nations. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron, the Cherethites, Moab, and Ethiopia. That's what chapter two is about. Um, There you go. So this is their last chance, basically. Um, He says in verse one, gather yourselves together. Yes, gather together an undesirable nation before the decree is issued on the day or the day passes like chaff before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you. He says to him, gather yourselves together. The idea is gathering together in a solemn demonstration of national mourning and repentance before the decree is issued. All the announcement of judgment in the previous chapter is understood as the warning, as an invitation to repentance. Like this is going to come if you won't return and you won't repent. This is what's going to come. Repent, return, come back to God before it's too late. That's his plea. Before it's too late. Before the day passes like chaff, he says. Here the prophet called for the sense of urgency in repentance. Each day, he says, it passes like nothing. Chaff is on the outside of wheat. You'd take wheat and you'd smash it together and rub it. And what's left was the wheat kernel and all the other stuff would just blow away in the wind. That's chaff. He says, days pass like that. Each day passes like chaff. There's nothing to show for the day if we neglect what is most important. Getting right and staying right with God is the point. How easy it is um, to let the days pass like chaff and never get right with God. Often the devil's most powerful lie isn't that there is no God or no Bible or no truth. Often his most powerful lie is that there is no hurry. Nevertheless, today is the day of salvation, the Bible says. In verse 11 Uh, You can read the chapter if you want. Verse 11, it says, the Lord will be awesome. That's a cool verse. The Lord will be awesome to them. Um, God would be glorified or be glorifying himself among the nations. And one way he would do it was to bring the idols of the nations low. 
All would see that their idols were vain and the Lord alone is God. He says, for he will reduce to nothing all the gods of the earth. People shall worship him, each one from his place, indeed all the shores of the nations. Malachi 1, verse 11, it says, for from the rising of the sun, even to its going down, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. In every place, incense shall be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name shall be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. There will come a day where God will abolish every other idol or worship of idol or every other God and reveal himself as the one true. And um, it's crazy because we know that behind all these other false gods is, is there's one force, there's one person, and it's the devil. Like, that's what we know. And so all of these things will be laid to waste at some point. Now, chapter 3. The Lord rejoices over the restoration of his people. Okay, we've had repent, return, now we're in the restoration part. Are you with me? <clears throat> we're almost done. Okay. He says, Woe to her who is rebellious and polluted to the oppressing city. She has not obeyed his voice. She has not received correction. She has not trusted in the Lord. She has not drawn near to God. I think this is one of the saddest, if not one, like one of the saddest, uh, verses that we've read in the minor prophets and he says that you're not listening notice she has not she has not she has not she has not in repeating these four phrases the prophet told us the root of jerusalem's sin she has not obeyed his voice right number one she has not obeyed his voice god god called to his people but they did not listen if there's any voice for the, the sheep to obey, it is the voice of the shepherd, but she has not obeyed his voice, he says. Like, he calls to him with his own voice, and they don't hear him. Even in hearing that verse, now, go, to, go New Testament, when Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice, and they will come out to me, right? God says, my people, she has not heard my voice, same voice, same call. That if, and even in, in Jesus' ministry, how many times he said, He who has an ear, let him hear. Anyone who has ears, <laughs> like, hear this. Anyone who has the ability to hear, listen to my voice, is the plea. The same thing here. And he says, She has not received correction. Correction certainly came, but she did not receive it. It is correction from the Lord. Instead, it was a bad time, tough circumstances, whatever, but she has not received correction. Like every time God would come with discipline and, and correct them, they'd be like, oh man, we're just going through a difficulty right now. I don't know what it is, but I'm really going through a tough time. God's correcting you. And they just didn't see it that way. They never saw it that way. Like cried to God, God help us. Why are you not helping us? We're going through a difficult time. God is, a, God is saying, this is a tool of correction. Come back to me. The third one is she has not trusted in the Lord. God never gave her a reason to stop trusting in him. He never proved himself unfaithful or untrustworthy. Now God's people will openly deny and contradict God's word and promises showing that she has not trusted in the Lord. And the last one was she had not drawn near to the Lord. The worst offense was safe for last, that God longed for relationship with his people, but they rejected his desire and went their own way. So she did not or has not drawn near to her God. That's what God desired from them. Remember, I, I can't remember if it was Habakkuk or if it was Micah. I think it was Micah. It's Micah. You remember when, when they, like, they come into the courts and they're like, God, what do you want from us? 
Like even if we offered you a mountain that flowed with olive oil, you wouldn't be satisfied. And they like scream out, like you asked too much, God. And God says, I don't, I haven't asked too much. You know what I've asked you to do. To what? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. It's the same idea that they're saying, we, we, like, you, what do you want from us? And God says, I want you. You don't, you don't understand. I don't want the outward expressions of worship. I want your heart. God has always been after the heart of humans, always after the heart of his people. In verses 8 through 13, God's going to bring judgment and restoration. It says in verse 9, or sorry, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, says the Lord, until the day I rise up for plunder. My determination is to gather the nations my assembly of kingdoms, to pour on them my indignation, all my fierce anger, all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. For then I will restore to the people a pure language, for they all may call on the name of the Lord to serve him with one accord. We have a reverse Tower of Babel here. Remember at the Tower of Babel when men was trying to build a structure to get to God. And so God gave them all different languages and confused their speech. So they spread out all over the nations, right? Remember stories in the book of Genesis. The Tower of Babel was man's attempt to get to God. Religion is man's attempt to get to God. Remember at Pentecost, at Pentecost, it was God condescending to us. It's a picture of his grace. Here we have this inverse Tower of Babel where they will have one speech, one language, and they will all be praising God at the same time with one accord. Um, in this ultimate restoration, God would give the world a common language again or a pure language, and the entire world will worship the Lord, not only Israel. It's talking about the, 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 all the believers, all those who came before, all those who were grafted in. Most Bible scholars see this as, remember we're talking about near fulfillment, future fulfillment? This is future fulfillment. Most Bible scholars see this as fulfilled in the days of the millennium, when Jesus Christ reigns for a thousand years over the earth after his return in power and glory. And from this passage, many scholars believe that in that day, the world will go back to a common language, perhaps Hebrew. I can finally speak it. I took Hebrew in Bible college on accident. I thought it was the book of Hebrews. So I showed up to class with my Bible and opened the book of Hebrews. And I'm like, when is this guy going to get to the word? Verse one. And he's writing these weird squiggly marks on the board backwards. And I'm like, this guy is drunk. Like what's going on? And I realized it was Hebrew 101 and I got a D. Um, so someday, I will be able to speak the language. There's no vowels. It is hard. Anyway, serve him with one accord. Okay, we're moving, moving quickly. Verse 14, sing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your judgment. He cast out your enemy, which is a great, underline that one. He cast out your enemy. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. I want you to notice how many times it says in your midst in this text. If you go back and just kind of underline how many times it says in your midst, in your midst, in your midst, meaning among you. Although they were exiled, God was in their midst. 
God never left them in their exile. God called to them in their exile. God, God was among them by his spirit. Like God was calling them and drawing them back to God, even though they were being punished, even though they were in exile. God was in their midst. Um, he says, you will see disaster no more. In verse 17, it says, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save. He'll rejoice, rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love and he will rejoice over you with singing. He will rejoice over you with singing. Um, the Lord your God in your midst, the mighty one will save, which is such a, a wonderful passage. This passage gives us definite steps for consolation as we understand that. That the Lord is in your midst, that the Lord is in your midst with power to save, that God takes joy in you, that God gives you rest in his love, and that God sings over you. Notice the, the switch from like this judgment that will come, but through that judgment, God, hopefully they would see God's mercy, and yet God still extends love. He still extends mercy to them and grace to them, and he says, God takes joy in you. Why would God take joy in me? Who am I that God would take joy in me? And then it says, God sings over you. Not once have I ever sung over anyone, even <laughs> except my children. Like, I'll sing over my children. Like, that's, that's the only time. Like, I don't sing over my wife because I love my wife. And I don't want to. I don't want to do that. That's gonna. That's gonna cause a riff um, between us. So just I've never sang over the one I love, but my children, yes, sing little songs to them and things like that. And I think that's the picture in which we're given: that God rejoices over us with singing. When when one person, the Bible says, when one person gives their life to Christ or returns to the Lord and comes back that all of heaven rejoices. That's what, that's what God's heart is to see, is that people who are lost would be saved. That is the heart of God. That is the heart of God. He loves to see people come to him, no matter how far they are, and he sings over them with rejoicing. Um, we often underestimate, I think, the joy of God, or joy that God has in his people, and too often think God is annoyed or irritated with us, especially after reading Zephaniah. You're like, God's just annoyed and irritated, and lava of judgment is going to be poured out. But Charles Spurgeon, he says this, Faulty as the church is, the Lord rejoices in her. While we mourn, as well as may, as well we may, yet we do not sorrow as those that are without hope. For God does not sorrow, his heart is glad, and he is said to rejoice with joy. A highly emphatic expression. God rejoices over us. I don't think, I don't think I've ever thought about that before. In, in all of my years of walking with the Lord, it's always like you come to God and you feel like he's disappointed. But that's not the case. God rejoices over us and is glad and rejoices in us. We don't often think of God singing but he does. I've never thought about God singing, ever. And he sings over his people. This is how much joy and delight we give to the Lord, that he breaks into song. 
It's pretty crazy to think about. Charles Spurgeon, one more time. He said this, think of great Jehovah singing. Can you imagine it? Is it possible to conceive of the deity breaking into a song, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost together singing over the redeemed? God is so happy in the love which he bears to his people that he breaks the eternal silence and sun and moon and stars with astonishment. They hear God chanting a hymn of joy. He said it way better than I could. One more time. Charles Spurgeon said this. If God sings, shall we not sing? He did not sing when he made the world, no. He looked upon it and simply said that it was good. The angels sang, the sons of God shouted for joy. Creation was very wonderful to them, but it was not much to God. Who could have made thousands of worlds by his mere will? The creation could not make him sing. When all was done and the Lord saw what became of it in the salvation of his redeemed, then he rejoiced after a divine manner. Come on. Come on. I don't know. If that doesn't stoke you out of your mind, I don't know what will. You guys are asleep. Me too. Okay. We'll end this here. It says, I will save the lame. Gather, gather those who were driven out. I will appoint them for praise and fame in every land where they were put to shame. At that time, I will bring, bring you back, even at the time I gather you, for I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I return your captives before your eyes, says the Lord. Now, this has a near fulfillment as Israel is back in its country. They are a country. They're a sovereign nation. Um, God did exactly what he said he would do and brought them back into their land. But I believe that there's also a future fulfillment in this. God brings us into our Zephaniah.